Welcome to Data Futures, a series about how technology is shaping our lives and what we need to do about it. Data Futures comes to you from the Media Futures Hub at the University of New South Wales and is recorded on the unceded lands of the Bejigal people. We acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to the Data Futures podcast series from the Media Futures Hub at the University of New South Wales. I'm Dr. Michael Richardson, your host for this episode and a senior research fellow in the School of the Arts and Media. In a world of accelerating datafication, automation, interconnection and surveillance, researchers in media and culture can play a crucial role in meeting emerging problems and building more just futures. And it drove the agenda on 30 September 2019 when a group of academics convened an international symposium with guests from Australia and around the world to consider the question of data futures. This limited series of four podcasts offers key insights from a day of discussion, debate, provocation on the theme of data futures. In this episode, we'll hear from Professor Mark Andreevich of Monash University, who delivered the keynote address on automated media. Over the next three episodes, we'll hear collections of short presentations on the themes of data infrastructures, data experiences, and data justice. Mark Andreevich is Professor of Media Studies at Monash University and one of the finest thinkers on surveillance, digital media, and interactivity. He also has a keen sense of how surveillance and power play out in popular culture, including how they are normalized. In many ways, Mark's work foreshadowed the chorus of critiques we now hear about surveillance capitalism and surveillance society. Along with dozens of articles and essays, Mark is the author of four books, I Spy, Surveillance and Power in the Interactive Era, Reality TV, The Work of Being Watched, Infoglut, How Too Much Information is Changing the Way We Think and Know, and most recently, Automated Media, out now with Routledge. Mark's keynote covered a lot of ground and set out some of the big ideas from his latest book. It's a fascinating talk, and I hope you find it as thought-provoking as we did. I'm going to pick up on the notion of data futures and uh, one of the things that I'm going to argue and that have to do with thinking about the relationship between data and automation. And I'm going to start out by making the argument that in the current conjuncture, questions around data and datafication are tied up completely with questions of automation. Uh, and I'll try to make an argument for that. And then in keeping with this spirit of data futures, the way that I've thinking about connecting to that theme was to try to extract some logics from automation. So my, my goal is to, I'm, I'm interested in this concept, I guess it's maybe roughly influenced by uh, Harold Innes's bias of communication, you know, thinking about how certain communication technologies have biases built into them. But when I think about bias, I'm not, I'm not thinking about bias in the way that for example, um, Virginia Eubanks or Sophia Noble have been talking about it, although I think that's crucially important. Not so much the biases in the automated systems, but the bias of automation itself, what it means when one decides to automate a process. Uh, and I'm going to try to pull out several key 
elements of what I think of as the logic of automation or the bias of automation that I, my wager is, hopefully, that when I'm thinking about this, when we're thinking about this question of the future, that those tendencies might be useful for uh, taking a look at the trajectory of automated systems as they develop and perhaps um, helping to point out the ways in which they operate uh, as forms of a certain type of violence that can be contested and to locate the maybe some pressure points for contesting that. So that's the overall rationale for the, for the presentation. I, I'm going to start with this claim that um, what we see in the current data system is, or the data platform economy, is a cascading logic of automation where once you start to develop platforms that make it possible to connect data in automated ways, uh, you collect so much information that you need to find, of course, automated ways of making sense of, of that data. And when, when you embark on that process, there's, it's a quite short step to thinking about automated forms of response. So this is what I mean by when I think about the relationship between datafication and, and automation, that um, once you start, once you automate this step, these tend to follow. Not inevitably, but there's a certain logic that, that links them together. And I can give you, and, and some interesting things happen once that cascading logic of automation starts. And I'm going to give you some examples that are quite familiar, but I, I, I'm, they kind of build up to one that seems um, uh, quite telling for our moment. So if you think about the realm of consumption, which is where a lot of these technologies and platforms form, we are familiar with the ways in which data collection is becoming automated in a variety of ways. Uh, and the, the way that information is being put to use is being processed to collect information about us and um, uh, divine then, you know, in this case, what our preferences might be. And of course, the next step, automating response, is, is the one, you know, Amazon's notorious patent that it's going to deliver to you what you want before you know you want it. Uh, and that, that notion of kind of automating the response um, I don't know why I, I was trying to think about what that meant in terms of subjectivity and desire, and I came up with this notion of umbilicular <laughs> commerce, right? That you're kind of connected to a system that knows what you want before you want it and, and de delivers it to you automatically. The only place I could find that word, by the way, umbilicular, was in James Joyce, <laughs> um, but not, not referring to this particular <laughs> concept. Um, we're familiar with a similar logic uh, in the realm of the social where social media collect information about us, they use it to, um, you know, sort us and find ways to manipulate us or um, target advertising to us. And then, of course, the the next step, in some ways, is to is to find ways to automate the sociality that's become so hypertrophied that it's hard to keep up with. So all of these systems that um, you know respond generate email responses for us or apps that uh, answer for us, that look up things about us so that if somebody asks a question, it can respond and, and provide information about us. It draws on your you know, phone number to access your contact list, list and uses deep machine learning to generate swift and witty responses to messages. Um, this notion that you know, somehow sociality built up and built up and built up so, f uh, so much that now we have to automate uh, our involvement in it. and, and and then it defaults, right, to something 
it's almost you know, like this dialectical reversal where you build it up so much that then it becomes some kind of pure isolation where you could withdraw and let your bot do all of your social interaction for you, which for academics is probably a certain type of fantasy, uh, especially, <laughs> especially when it comes to, to bureaucratic stuff. Right? Um, the, of course, in security, um, taking its cue in some ways from the commercial sector, uh, this is a quote that I've spent a lot of time with because I just like the ambition of it, but uh, this is Gus Hunt, the former um, uh, chief technical officer of the CIA, talking about their philosophy about, in, about data. And in the course of this talk, he references Google. He's, he's kind of, well, we're shifting to a Google model. Uh, and that model is we try to collect everything and hang on to it forever uh, in a speculative realm because the, the idea is, and I'm going to come back to this quote a little bit later because it gets to what I've been thinking about as, as or describing as framelessness, you know, try to collect everything. Um, you know, he says, we're moving from a model of search and winnow, a kind of selective model of information collection, to, to one of um, thinking of information as, as a pattern forming process. And if you throw away any of the data that you might have collected, you sacrifice your ability to generate some patterns that might emerge when you collect more data down the road. Um, so in order to try to see as many patterns as possible, you've got to keep all of the information that you collect and not throw any away. We know the ways in which, for security purposes, once data collection is automated, um, forms of data processing become automated. And uh, one of the things that's been taking place is thinking about I think we're, you know, on a, in certain ways on the cusp of automating the security process, or probably many of you have got examples of ways in which that's already taking place in terms of response. Uh, but I was, you know, I was thinking about what's happening in the U.S. around um, this, the kind of, if you look at the uh, increase in school shootings um, and the refusal to develop a policy in the U.S. Uh, that would address, you know, kind of a s social policy that would address what's happening with uh, guns. Um, instead, what's happening is an opening for the tech sector to come up with models for imagining how, if you don't change the policy around guns, you could try to address at the point of emergence uh, the violence that takes place. And um, this, is, this is a company funded by uh, Peter Thiel, Athena, uh, um, that's you know, seizing on the opportunity to say, well, you know, like, why don't we just equip all of the cameras in schools with um, machine learning systems that are able to detect, you know, the presence of guns and also down the road activities that correlate with um, a potential threat. Uh, but what intrigued me about this, and it's going to come up a little bit later when I give these examples of, of logics of automation, is this, uh, this quote that comes from a story about Athena. The software can detect that a fight is about to occur milliseconds after the first punch is launched, before it even lands on the victim. It's a really interesting temporality, right? It's, it's a temporality like we know with enough certainty that something is going to happen to, if it were possible, to intervene in that space, stop it before it happens, right? So it's important that the punch is launched, right? Because that's kind of a, a signal for intervention can now take place. The action is started. But, uh, but before it lands, that means there's a quite short interval there in which intervention can take place, right? <laughs> and and, um, and that, that interval, of course, is only accessible, if indeed at all, 
to an automated system, right? That's if, if you're able to develop, if, you're, if you think this is important to be able to mark that moment of temporality, the reason you would think it's important is because that's the moment of a, of a potential automated intervention, I think. The, uh, in the political realm, and this is, this is the one that for me is the kind of meta um, form of automation because it, it gets to what I think it's, is at the heart of these processes, which um, when you get to that third step of response tends to be about the automation of judgment. And um, when you automate judgment, one of the things that you do, I think, is compress the space for the political. Uh, and the, you know, we're familiar with data collection, the, you know, the parties gathering the, um, the databases and the fact that in Australia, um, you know, the political parties are exempt from the Privacy Act so that they can collect data and do, do things that they want with it using this to uh, sort and target voters. And then the one that seemed really intriguing to me was um, former MIT media prof Cesar Hidalgo, his idea for, you know, I, I guess this is a kind of update of Ross Perot's version of, of direct democracy, uh, but the, you know, the next step in the tech that um, if it going back to, I guess, the kind of historical questions that were raised by folks like Dewey and Lippmann, you know, how do you create an informed populace in an era of, you know, complex, interdependent forms of political issues? And one of the solutions he came up with, and he calls, he calls democracy a, a bandwidth problem. Uh, and the solution then would be that you could develop automated, you, you know, you could develop a personal digital agent that would, in the same way that Amazon knows your shopping preferences, would know your political preferences, but would but then also be able to go through the available political coverage or political information and party campaigns and party platforms and decide for you which candidate most fits your preferences, know in advance who you would want to vote for, I suppose, in, in this case. And then you could have everybody have their own personal agent that would act as their political proxy and would, in a sense, do voting for them in ways that makes it possible to do a more direct form of democracy, right? He, desc he describes a, you know, a, a Senate that would be, have as many agents in it as there are people or registered voters, or, right? So that uh, in a sense you could bypass the process of representation uh, and, and get to this automated form of politics. Of course, as is often the case with these types of proposals, you know, one of the big things that's missing is, is a political economy of, of, uh, of this technology. You know, who would develop this? <laughs> oh yeah, let's have Google develop our digital agents um, if it would raise some interesting issues. What intrigues me there is the, is the attempt to kind of subtract uh, the subject from the realm of politics and, and automate that process, uh, which to me seems to be at the heart of, uh, of a lot of what's taking place. So I mentioned at the beginning that I'm, I'm going to try to um, speak to some what I think of as biases of automation. I, I'm using these terms to um, capture what I think are some logics at work that are in some ways interconnected, uh, but also kind of point in the direction of thinking about their own deadlocks and contradictions. So many of the things that I will put up here uh, I think are kind of impossible logics, if that makes sense. So a logic that structures um, a set of goals or endpoints, but at the same time is notionally uh, or conceptually incoherent, and yet carries with it um, a certain type of practical purchase, right? So the idea doesn't necessarily have to be coherent for it to have purchase. And that's um, the, the, the moment of its incoherency for me looks like the moment of a possible point of contest contestation. 
often when I talk about these things, the response that people have is, well, that's impossible. And I think in a sense, that's the point. Uh, so I'm going to start with that first one that I threw up there, preemption. Uh, and we're so familiar now with the logics of preemption. Every time we turn around, we see some new app that's going to, um, you know, or some new platform or new technology that's going to try to stop something or uh, make something, I, I don't know, do something that needs to be done before you know you want it done. Um, but all of these logics that, uh, in a sense, try to accelerate the a particular form of outcome in order to minimize risk or maximize opportunity, as if, in a sense, all possible risks and all potential opportunities could be somehow injected into the present and acted upon it at that, at that moment. This, this is one that I just saw in a recent article. Uh, what, what intrigued me about this was you know, more than this, uh, because this logical trajectory has been clear for a while, right? You know, cameras that can spot shoplifters even before they steal. But what was interesting to me was that it was the kind of um, de-differentiated characteristic of it. Technology can also be used for security, suicide prevention. There's probably a list of other things that, that you could add there um, because it becomes a kind of mm, preemption machine that looks for different possible outcomes in order to project into a future, sorry, project, I guess, introject a future into the present where it can be acted upon. This is to refer back to the security example. Um, this is, the I, again, I think the incipient logic of uh, a company like Athena um, that's blaming other security cameras. They can only document crimes after they happen, right? We can intervene in the moment of occurrence. They're not quite saying yet that we can, you know, tase the potential suspects, right? But it's, it's moving in that direction, right? It's, you know, we can send out a message, we can lock the doors, we can, um, you know, we can have the, the school become a kind of, you know, self-hardening machine that, uh, that is automatically responding to, to threat. It's that disparagement of the temporality of other forms of, of surveillance that's interesting to me. And I'll say a little bit more about that um, in a second. So when I say preemption, how I'm framing it or how I'm thinking about it is in opposition to something that would be not preemption or would be different from preemption but would still intervene. And, uh, and so for the sake of kind of making a provocation, I've been, I've been thinking about prevention as existing in opposition to preemption in the sense that prevention requires a certain type of account of, um, that incorporates a temporality and that provides certain for kinds of explanation. So I'm thinking of preventative systems as those which attempt to understand certain chains of causality and then to intervene in them uh, so as to reduce whatever the potential outcome is. Whereas preemption I'm thinking of, uh, and I'm going to use this term operational because that's another one of my um, you know, key terms for thinking about automated bias in ways that I think connect to the realm of the political. Preemption isn't quite representational. It's not, it's not representing what happens, and it's not asking for some type of belief or acceptance in an explanation. It's more interested in uh, looking at uh, moments of emergence and attempting to intervene in the moment of emergence. So um, if you think about ways in which those might be compared to one another, you might think about you know, what often gets talked about in the case of data mining, the difference between kind of explanation and correlation, right? That um, preemptive systems are going to work more on this on the side of uh, correlation uh, and prediction. When it comes to causal analysis, they don't need to be articulated to narratives uh, of, uh, expla of explanation or ex explanatory narratives. Um, 
I, I pull this notion of emergent causality from you know, William Connolly's description of, of what happens when you think about um, the causality of assemblages and the way that he's thinking about it. The cause cannot be said to be fully different from the effect engendered. In some sense, the cause comes into being at the moment that the effect comes into being. And, and so to intervene at the cause in that moment means actually intervening in the effect at the moment of emergence. You know, I should say probably one of the examples that frames my thinking about this is what happened to um, some block grant funding in the US. And it's, it's, it is an anecdotal example, but I think it highlights maybe some of this shift. There was, uh, in the 1990s, um, a series of block grant programs that were designed to address um, crime in, in inner city areas. And the, those block grants were, do, were to develop things like programs for recreation for young people in, uh, in high crime areas, you know, the proverbial finding ways to give kids some alternative to other activities that were taking place uh, in the streets and also education programs that were designed to uh, skill up folks to provide them with some um, possibilities or choices that were different from what they might have otherwise. Those block grant programs were uh, subsequently dismantled and the money went to um, policing systems that were mostly tied to things like uh, surveillance and new technologies for policing, right? So um, this idea of intervening at what might be considered through policy at the, at, at, you know, kind of underlying social causes gets displaced into the realm of how can we use the technology to detect uh, criminal activity at the moment of emergence when it's taking place, or, you know, predictive policing programs that would allow us to allocate um, police force according to uh, the data that, that uh, we generate. Um, and so th this notion of um, representational versus operational is something I'm going to come back to when I talk about operationalism. Um, but it, it gets to, I, I guess, you know, I was trying to think what are some of the ways in which um, we might approach the question of why we see a shift like this. And I think, you know, one of the reasons, uh, I'm positing this here, is that there's a certain, uh, uh, you know, set of, challenges that are, posed, that are posed by the attempt to provide narrative explanations. And those are the ones that we've become quite familiar with when we, when we look at the current political conjuncture and we think about the ways in which providing um, you know, narrative accounts that can generate consensus um, is a fundamentally political task. And it's also vexed by some of the developments that we've seen in the in the public sphere, uh, forms uh, strategies for communication that work to deliberately um, undermine the possibility of finding ways to develop uh, forms of consensus around political narratives. I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but I'm, I'm suggesting that there are um, a whole range of challenges that have been thrown up uh, in part because of political shifts, in part because of technological transformations in, in the media environment. And I, I you know, this is, this is uh, Slavoj Žižek's uh, uh, formulation, the decline of symbolic efficiency, which seems to me to have a kind of interesting purchase in the sense that um, it, it approaches, on the one hand, what's happening uh, in, or, or what's been raising certain concerns in the political sphere, but also uh, in the realm of surveillance, which I've been thinking about. You know, what, what happens when you take these operational or preemptive logics and think about them in the surveillance realm? And, and I think one of the things that happens is you see a shift away from the symbolic character of the of panoptic logics, right? Which which I would argue are actually um, 
a very symbolic machine in the sense that they rely on the symbolism of surveillance to render a certain type of, of efficiency, right? The Foucauldian formula in the Panopticon, right, is, is um, you know, it is, it is once too much and not enough that inmates or whoever be watched all the time. It, it's, it's too much because you don't actually have to watch all the time. That was, that was Bentham's, you know, efficiency model for the, for the panopticon. If you can get people to be self-disciplining subjects, then you don't have to watch them. Isn't that cool? Then you can, you know, eventually reduce maybe to zero the number of guards in the, in the tower. But the way, it, but it's, it's not enough because people need to know that they're being watched all the time. That's the, that's the symbolic power of the panopticon. This is the symbol that you're being monitored in, in the invitation to internalize the monitoring gaze, right? So, um, so you could put the sign up without a camera necessarily, right? That's, that's if, if it had symbolic efficacy, right? That's what I mean by thinking about the symbolic uh, uh, power of the panopticon. Um, of course, the model that we're moving to in certain contexts is quite different from that, right? It's, it's the opposite. It's not that um, uh, people need to be know that they're monitored all the time. Um, it's that, in some ways, it's actually better if they don't know because we will get their more, what, authentic, spontaneous, undisguised, uh, undisciplined um, uh, information about them. But that means that you're not relying on the disciplinary power of surveillance anymore. You're not relying on getting them to behave, right? You're relying on something else, which is that you've got to be able to intervene at the moment when something happens, right? So think of the shoplifter, right? The, you know, one paradigm would be this, but the other paradigm would be the camera that's there that actually knows they're going to shoplift something before they shoplift it, but you don't need this. In fact, this would interfere with that those those two logics might exist in a certain tension, if if that makes sense, um, and so that's what I mean when I think about what how surveillance might operate in a in a I don't know if post symbolic is the right word, but you know dispensing with certain disciplinary logics of symbolic representation and finding um, other ways of of uh, intervening. But of course that requires to develop the forms of comprehensive simulation that you would need to be able to. Um, intervene in the nick of time requires that they are watched all the time, right? So once you subtract the disciplining moment, then you need surveillance all the time, in quotes, right? And not only that, uh, and this is, this is the, um, uh, you know, I've been trying to make a case for this as a concept, and I'll see how it works, but um, not only do you need to watch all the time, but in principle, um, anything is potentially relevant, if that makes sense. When I was doing some work on predictive policing, I came across these different companies that were trying to kind of differentiate themselves from other predictive policing um, systems. And it, you know, one of them said, you know, we don't restrict ourselves to only information that looks like it's correlated to criminal activity. So it's not just past crime or, um, I don't know, criminal records and so on. But we also look at things like the weather and the phases of the moon. And this was in Chicago. They looked at windiness. <laughs> and, um, you know, <laughs> good place to look at windiness. But, you know, apparently, you know, uh, high wind actually correlated with a drop in, in criminal activity in certain locations. And, you know, we could postulate why, but like, in a sense it doesn't really matter from the point of view of these systems. Uh, um, but the, the notion of framelessness has been suggestive to me because of the way in which it correlates representational technologies with um, information collection practices, if that makes sense, right? You know, if, if you're going to try to collect everything and hold on to it forever, how do you represent, represent what you've 
collected. And it's, it's interesting to me that we're developing these kind of 360 cameras and virtual reality environments because in some sense, those work as the forms of representation that correlate to frameless um, processes of information capture. This example intrigues me and, and it, it gets to what I think of as maybe a certain type of violence being done to the figure of the subject, which I'm gonna come back to in, in a moment. Um, this was a, a pop-up ad that, that popped up um, for me at some point when, uh, it was several years ago, but, uh, but the model seems to be to capture the contemporary moment in, in ways that I, I think are suggest suggestive. This was a, a um, technology that you, you wore, it was a camera that you wear and it records everything all the time. Uh, it was called LifeLogger. Captured my attention about this was the, the advertising copy. How much of your life do you remember? The answer is statistically around 0.001%. And that's if you have a good memory, right? We've, we've taken the feature of subjectivity, right, and turned it into its flaw. Uh, and um, this is about to be changed by a startup company called LifeLogger, which could be the next big thing. It wasn't the next big thing, but you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe down the road eventually. But, um, but it, it, was, it, was a kind of, it was kind of a fascinating idea. You know, like as, as a subject, you know, your problem is that you're selective and that um, your perception of the world is partial. Uh, and this is your problem. It's actually a problem inherent to the figure of the subject, right? And also, I would argue, inherent to um, logics of narration, uh, which, um, as I tried to suggest earlier, are, are under a certain type of pressure from uh, other ways of, of thinking about uh, how to intervene in the world. Um, it raises interesting problems, right? Because the, the question is, let's say you had a camera that captured all of your memories, or what, they wouldn't be called memories at that point, captured everything, all of your, what would you call them, experiences? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> how would you then know what you wanted to remember? Uh, and of course, at that moment, um, automation would kind of come back in, right? And so they, one of the things that they came up with is something that would monitor you biometrically and measure like levels of you know, arousal or interest and then tag those and you could go back and say like, what did I respond to? Uh, um, but you could imagine other similar forms of automation that are very familiar to us like crowdsource it or something, or you know, no, collaboratively filter it. You know, other people who like memories like this, you know, also like <laughs> memories like this, right? You know, but there'd be some kind of platform that would do your, mem your remembering for you. We can recall it for you, uh, but that's the <laughs> total recall um, uh, wholesale. Uh, but you know, right, the, the, the problem becomes a recursive one that, that, you know, where does memory get located then? It gets offloaded from the subject onto some type of a, uh, of an automated system. This one, in a psychoanalytic sense, I thought was really interesting to me. The, um, they've developed this camera for babies that you're supposed to put on your baby like the second it arrives <laughs> so, that, so, that, um, so that it can capture for you when you are a subject the memories that you would not have formed bef before you became a subject. They're kind of, kind of like you know, a pre-subjective form of, uh, of, um, of data capture. What was the emotion of my parents when they saw me for the first time? Like, like it's so, <laughs> like you can imagine, right? I, I did, like some kind of, well, what if you could equip the baby with it, you know, as it emerges? <laughs> so, right, like that's the, you know, some kind of, there would be no gap at all in the, in the, um, in the uh, um, information capture. But the, um, uh, this is, this is um, Ben Anderson talking about, in, this is an article he writes about drone surveillance. And, um, and I, I, I just want to juxtapose this to like the 
Kevin Kelly wired version of it. Um, you know, when the pre-insurgent is everybody, so he's thinking about drone logics in counterinsurgency uh, contexts, um, but really it could be something that you applied to risk more generally, right, the, the prospect of risk. Um, anybody could become an insurgent or a criminal or a threat or a risk or an opportunity, I think you could say at the same time, then everything is dangerous or profitable, <laughs> right? If, um, if I added a, another twist to it. Um, when everything is dangerous, all of life must be known and in intervened in without limit or remainder. Um, so that's a quite, I, I, I don't know, maybe concerning or a dystopian formula. Um, then Kevin Kelly comes in and, <laughs> and does kind of his 1990s thing, which I remember this article came out, it was like his big piece for this year, I think it was right at the beginning of this year. I remember reading this and going, wow, this is that very 1990s moment of describing something that sounds completely dystopian but in very enthusiastic, happy terms. And so he writes this article called Mirror World uh, about what he thinks is gonna be the next platform. And the next platform is gonna be reality, thanks to augmented reality, but to, um, to make that happen, you have to have data about everything all the time in real time, right? And so he comes up, you know, and, and you know, he consciously invokes the, um, uh, I guess Borges is kind of a leitmotif in this presentation. I hadn't thought about that because, you know, the, the remember everything is, is the funies, the memorias, right? The, the, the figure who um, takes a whole day to remember a day <laughs> because he's got a perfect memory. Uh, um, but the, the uh, you know, the map that's coextensive with the territory is the, you know, exactitude in science. Um, um, uh, Borges' uh, short piece that Baudrillard picks up on. And Kelly references this. To create a map that is as big as the globe in 3D, you need to photograph all places and things from every possible angle all the time, which means you have to have a planet full of cameras that are always on. But why, ca why cameras, right? It's, yeah, of sensors, like, of all kinds, right, that would capture everything, uh, presumably, that's potentially relevant. The um, next, you know, kind of, um, logic that I want to think about by connecting it with framelessness is this notion, and I, th and I think Kevin Kelly's piece kind of segues this, or makes this connection, um, to the forms of control that are not necessarily based on representation in the sense that panoptic forms of control might be, but are that are um, based on what Foucault describes in his uh, later College de France lectures uh, as environmentality, in which government, uh, in a form, of a form of control that will act on the environment and systematically modify its variables, right? Uh, this is the, um, this is Masumi's take on, on environmentality. The difference from discipline is twofold. Uh, first, action occurs through the regulation of environmental effects rather than the entraining of optimal sequences of action. Second, action does not aim for a homostasis, but rather works through far from equilibrium, proce equilibrium processes, right? If the panopticon one is, is maybe certain, a certain version of homeostasis in which self-disciplining subjects, in a sense, behave. The, um, the environmental one is constant intervention, right? Like, always there's a new moment that has to be intervened on, which means, of course, that always um, monitoring has to be um, uh, vigilant. The, um, uh, so Kevin Kelly's model, 
you know, if you think of, I don't know, if you think of the platform as the Internet of Things or of the augmented reality that he's thinking about um, or the smart city, these are, these are all kind of environmental level models of information collection and intervention, right? They, they all model not just the ability to collect information, but the ability to intervene, intervene through a kind of modulatable environment, if that makes sense, right? So I deform the environment in ways that operate as a, as a, as a model of control. Uh, and, and I think that's, that to me seems interesting in the sense that it bypasses the whole logic of subjectivity that's associated with the disciplining characteristics of you know, panoptic forms or disciplinary forms of control. Sorry, this one just occurred to me when I was thinking about that, the ways in which imagining what, what it would mean to create a completely monitored and flexible environment. This was an article from Education Week that was, again, very much in that register of, um, hey, isn't this cool? And I'm reading it and going, my god, you're kidding me. Um, but uh, but that, that moment's not over. That's interesting to me. I thought, you know, in some sense, uh, a tech backlash, blah, blah, like that moment was, um, but that moment remains with us. Uh, imagine classrooms outfitted with cameras that run constantly, capturing each child's every facial expression, fidget, and social interaction every day, all year long. Then imagine on the ceilings of those rooms, infrared cameras documenting the objects. And it goes on and on, right? And picture now children themselves wearing Fitbit-like devices that track everything from their heart rates. There's some kind of interface um, that is biometric. Uh, between all of these. But you know, the, the goal here, of course, is to create fully modulatable, customized um, education, right? So it's, it's both frameless data collection combined with environmental um, modulation through intervention. Um, so the, the last piece that I, I want to say something about is this notion of operationalism, which I'm thinking of as, the, as a paradigm that exists in tension to representation. Uh, and the, the person who's kind of influential for my thinking here is a filmmaker, Harun Faroqi, who's really interested in the, the images that machines make for machines. And he does a, f a series of movies called I, Machine 1, 2, and 3 that are, uh, that are kind of taken from the perspective of machine vision, how, how machines see. He describes it this way. In my first work on the subject, I, Machine, I called such pictures made neither to entertain nor to inform operative images. These are images that do not represent an object, but rather are part of an operation, right? So they're not, like in a sense, the representational dimension is, is collapsed or eradicated, eliminated, right? You might have tracked how representation takes on different um, valences in what I've been describing, you know, from political representation to um, you know, representational narratives or explanations uh, to here representational images. These aren't representations. They don't function as representations. And we might ask what that means, and I'll, I'll try to get at that in a second. Um, rather, they do things. They get things done. They act. And then the artist Trevor Paglin comes up and attempts to, he, he tries to update um, some of Faroqi's work uh, by actually going and doing some research to see how, you know, what contemporary machines uh, uh, characterize as images. And his finding was, I, I think, an interesting one and, and probably explains some of his recent work that you may have been following, you know, where he's, he's doing work on machine vision to show you what the machines see and how they categorize it. Uh, but but he, the formulation that he comes up is interesting to me. You know, we're, we're approaching a moment where most of the images in the world are descendants of the operational image. Um, uh, and those images don't get made anymore. He couldn't find the images, right? Whatever it was, that little interface that allowed humans to see what the machine was doing, in many cases, that just no longer existed because what they were doing was very challenging to represent to you know, humans in the dimension that humans see. Um, so, uh, and the way he puts it is, meat eyes are far too inefficient to see what's going on anyway. Uh, the, um, and so you end up with images made by machines for other images. To describe them as images is interesting, right, at this point, because 
the element of visuality is not, doesn't seem to be necessarily tied to um, what gets described as images. Uh, but I was trying to think of what gets lost in the rise of operationalism. This seems to me to be a very important um, area to think about in the contemporary moment. I was trying to think of some different ways to approach it. Um, one is, this is, from, this is one of Paglin's uh, uh, works. Um, I, I wanted to get this as the cover for, for the book, actually, that, that you mentioned. But they wouldn't, the editors, the, sorry, the publisher wouldn't let me do it because it's based on an underlying Magritte work. And they're, they're like, Paglin was cool with it, but um, the, I don't, they didn't want to go to figure out where the Magritte rights were. Um, but anyway, this is a, a riff. It's in that series of Susine Pazimpit, right? In this case, it's the apple. Uh, this, it's, a, it's a kind of meditation on representation, what it means to uh, represent what it is that's being represented. And then what he does is he simply trains a machine image classification system. And of course, it says uh, Apple, <laughs> right? It's, um, so the idea of the, whatever that space is that reflects on the, the gap between the representation and the thing being represented, that gets collapsed in the, in the machine image. Like it's a, that's an Apple, <laughs> right? And that raises an interesting question, I suppose. You know, like what would it mean to open up the space for representation in the process of image classification. And that seems to me to be at the heart of the, the kind of challenge of the automation of, um, of forms of judgment uh, and forms of classification. Sorry, I'm going to end with kind of these two aesthetic examples, because they, they seem to me to get to some of the logics that I've been talking about. These are Teju Cole's um, stories about drones that came out a while back when he was trying to mark or draw attention to, to what was taking place um, with um, the use by the US government of drone, uh, drones. Uh, and he writes these tweets that are all beginnings of famous novels, but all get interrupted by drone strikes. Uh, and, and you know, on one hand, it's quite striking. Uh, call me Ishmael, right? I was a young man of military age. I was immolated at my wedding. My parents are inconsolable. Right? You know, these are you know, descriptions of what's taking place in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan. Um, at the same time, I thought what's quite interesting is the truncation of narrative. That seems to be, you know, like, you know, a story seems to just about start and then it all gets obliterated, right? That notion of the fate of narrative in the context of operationalism seems quite suggestive to me. The, the space of narrative insofar as narrative opens up possibilities for interpretation, judgment, uh, for that space or that gap between um, I, I guess that space opened up by representation. It's that space that gets collapsed or preempted or uh, uh, somehow shattered by these forms of automation that I've, I've been talking about. Um, so some consequences. One thing that I, I gestured to at the beginning, and uh, I'll maybe revisit now, is um, in, in many cases, we've encountered f in familiar ways the logic of, well, we just need to perfect the technology to get this right. I, I think. That notion, or what I've been trying to gesture at, is in many cases the perfection is imp that's impossible, <laughs> right? You know, total information capture, framelessness. These are all kind of impossible. They mark impossible concepts, uh, and um, the notion that we could just get there if we keep doing more of the same strikes me as a as a logic that's um, built more around perfecting forms of particular types of control than it is for addressing the types of concerns that we typically raise. Um, I'm intrigued by this from a theoretical perspective in the ways that um, certain versions or ways of thinking uh, about um, 
I don't know, a post-discursive moment, actually work to, collapse, I, I think, in some ways, perform a similar operation, I don't think necessarily intentionally, to um, what I've been talking about when it comes to collapsing the space of representation, which I think also is, has a relation to the space or the, uh, um, the uh, figure of the subject. Um, sorry, just one little quick psychoanalytical point that riffs off of this. The, there's a great, you know, Ray Kurzweil, the, f the futurist who, um, you know, wants, is taking $1,000 worth of vitamins a day so that he can live to the singularity so he can be forever. Uh, the, um, the other thing that he's doing is trying to make his father forever. Sorry, I mentioned this guy to you last night. But this quote seemed to be very interesting. Somebody, he's trying to get all the data about his deceased father to create an AI that he can have a conversation with. And somebody asked him, <laughs> somebody asked him, um, would this, would, do you think it would be like talking to your father? And he said something that to me seems like a, a, an inadvertent but brilliant psychoanalytic insight, which was, it's going to be more like my father than my father was. And, and in some ways, that's what, uh, these forms of data capture and data monitoring are about. We're going to make you more like yourself than you are. Right? That's what it means to know what you want before you want it. Or, um, to, if we could fully capture you in data terms, we can make you more like you are than you are. But of course, you, the very fact that you are not like yourself, that's a signature element of what it is to be a subject. Right? So um, that, that's why, um, in the end, I, I guess what I'm trying to suggest is that some of the impossibilities that I've been gesturing at look to me like uh, loci or purchase points for um, forms of contesting these logics that I've been describing. Thank you so much for your time. That's, yeah. That was Professor Mark Andreevich from Monash University delivering the keynote address at the Data Futures Symposium at the University of New South Wales. In the next episode, we'll turn to the theme of data infrastructures with six short provocations. Thanks for listening.